This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. If we were compiling a list of the major religious figures of the 20th century, close to the top would have to be Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Admittedly, he doesn't have the notoriety of the likes of Martin Luther King, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dorothy Day, or the Dalai Lama. But in certain circles, he is greatly admired for his work in interfaith relations civil rights, anti-war efforts, and expansive Jewish theology. He's someone I've admired for quite a while, and my hope is that a new documentary that will debut soon will speak to a new generation of like-minded activists, seekers, and those who are committed to social justice. Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, will air over PBS in May. Locally, the film can be seen on our sister station, WGVU-TV, on May 16th. I'm very pleased to give you all a sneak preview by having the director of this monumental work with us today. His name is Martin Doblmeyer. Martin holds degrees in religious studies and broadcast journalism. Since 1984, he has produced and directed more than 30 films focused on religion, faith, and spirituality. Martin combines a lifelong interest in religion, with a passion for storytelling. Over the years, he has traveled on location to more than 40 countries to profile numerous religious leaders, spiritual communities, heads of state, and Nobel laureates. His films explore how belief can lead individuals to extraordinary acts, how spirituality creates and sustains communities, and how faith is lived in extraordinary ways. A moment ago, I mentioned the luminaries of faith, Bonhoeffer and Dorothy Day. Those two have been subjects of previous documentaries of Martin that are now available for viewing on YouTube. So we welcome to Common Threads, Martin Doblmeyer. Hello, Martin. Hello, Fred. Thank you for having me. Certainly, certainly. First question is, this particular project on Heschel, uh, what made you decide to create this now? It Was it pretty much random, or was there something about what is going on today that said, no, the people need to know about, uh, about uh, Abraham Joshua? Well, um, Abraham Heschel's story, um, the, the Spiritual Audacity film, is part of a series that I'm doing. It's called Prophetic Voices. This is a, a four-part series, and Heschel is the last of the four parts, on great figures of the 20th century uh, that we think, we feel as though we cannot forget. Uh, they include Reinhold Niebuhr, the great American public theologian, Howard Thurman, who was the African-American theologian and a great influence, a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr., Dorothy Day, who was the great Catholic social activist, and now the last one is Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I, I think is really one of the most extraordinary religious figures of the 20th century. 
Uh, and uh, as you said in your introduction, um, it's it's true he may not have the same kind of name recognition that Martin Luther King does or, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but uh, to look at his life and his writings, uh, we look now 50 years back at what he left us as he passed away and, and realize what a really monumental figure he was and how, how we, we, we forget him at our own loss. Clearly. Uh, tell us a little bit about who he was. Um, I know that he said he grew up surrounded by religious nobility. So let's talk about how he was raised and the stock that he comes from. Yep. Heschel was born in Poland in uh, 1907. And he really does come from this uh, lineage, this dynasty of rabbis, Jewish rabbis, rebbies, um, who were influential people throughout the course of, of many years, across centuries, really. And so it's already understood when he's born that he will become a rabbi, uh, that he will become a leader within his own community. And as we show in the film, it's even, it's even told as a story by his own daughter, who said that when Rabbi Heschel was just five years old, he would be stood up on a table, and he'd get, get a chance to preach at four, five, six years old. He'd get to say something, and people were already listening, as though he was already endowed, as far as they were concerned, with a natural sense of authority just by who he was. Uh, but then you discover that uh, Heschel was a very, very serious scholar. Um, he took studying the traditions of his faith and, and applying that to what was happening all throughout the course of his life. So he's ex he's ex he goes to the University of Berlin in Germany, uh, and he excels there. He gets his, uh, he gets his rabbinic, uh, rabbi's um, certificate. He becomes a rabbi early in life. So he's way ahead of the, the curve academically. So he's, he's already sort of established a role for himself as a, as a, as a brilliant thinker. Uh, but it's not until he comes to the United States in 1940, in the, in the beginning of, of World War II, uh, that he begins to establish himself as a prolific writer. And it's because of those writings that people like Martin Luther King Jr. and others get a sense of why he would be important for them to employ in their civil rights movement. You just mentioned a minute ago that he had a particular authority. Uh, I believe he was quoted as saying that he had authority but not power, and many conflate the two. But what is your understanding of his understanding of the difference between authority and power? Well, well, I think we all understand that power comes traditionally with position or money. Um, that's not the case for Heschel. Um, he was never in a position of authority in that sense, never had wealth, uh, could never buy power. But the reason why Abraham Heschel had authority because of his gift of wisdom and a sense, the soul that, that he conveyed to everybody that came in contact with him gave him a natural sense of authority. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. and the entire civil rights movement wanted Abraham Heschel by their side when they made those famous marches in Selma, Alabama. It's why people uh, like uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who was considered the most brilliant public theologian of his day, wanted the friendship, the association, the confirmation from somebody like Rabbi Abraham Heschel because they saw in him a brilliance uh, that really couldn't be bought. He was just that kind of character. Who sought whom out in the civil rights movement? Uh, was, was Heschel proactive in inserting himself into that, or uh, was he contacted by people who said, we need your help in this, in this effort? 
early on, it was a contact from Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement to get him invited into it. But once, um, well, let's go back for a second. Uh, actually, the, Abraham Heschel and Martin Luther King Jr. actually had their first meeting in 1963. Uh, it was at a conference in Chicago on race and religion. And they were both brought in as keynote speakers. So obviously, Heschel was already a, an acclaimed uh, spokesperson for his faith, for the Jewish faith at that time. But when Martin Luther King heard Heschel speak, and when Heschel got a chance to meet um, Martin Luther King Jr., they both realized they were kindred spirits. They were both leaders. They were both descended in their own faith traditions. Uh, they, were all, they, were, they were considered le- both political and social leaders, religious leaders. And there was this immediate bond between the two of them that would last throughout the course of their lifetime. And that's why Heschel was one of the first people that the movement called in 1965 when those famous marches were going to happen in Selma, Alabama. Let's jump back a little bit. I, I was actually planning on uh, talking about World War II and uh, Germany at that point before jumping into civil rights. Not that we have to have a, a purely chronologically appropriate conversation here, but I, I did want to get a sense of the the culture of Berlin because the way it is described, uh, first of all, um, it doesn't seem to be as debauched as one might uh, gather from watching Cabaret or reading the book uh, I Am a Camera that that inspired uh, Cabaret. Um, And apparently it was a a strong intellectual center. Was it a strong religious center as well? Were uh, Judaism and Christianity thriving at at that point in this, a Berlin in the 20s? Uh, yes, I, I think it was. Um, it was, an, as you said, an intellectual center. I mean, people were coming from all over the world and, and to Berlin to to be educated. Uh, certainly Heschel wanted to go there from Poland, and he did. He shows up there in 1927. Uh, and um, uh, it, it's just a time um, that, yes, there were, uh, there were uh, obviously it was the 20s, um, and the same things were happening in the uh, in Germany as were happening in the United States. There was uh, there was plenty of partying going on, and a lot of a lot of people having making a good time of it. But there was also a center for great intellectual pursuit, science, and pursuit of knowledge, and that's what Heschel came for. Uh, and he studied philosophy. Great philosophers at the time were there. Uh, religion was thriving at the time in the twenties, uh, and and I think that, uh, but also too. Towards the end of the 20s, as, as we begin to enter into the 30s, something very different is taking over Germany, and he was there and witnessed all of that, too. How about the fact that he moved from uh, a Hasidic culture in Poland to Berlin in the 20s, where the reform movement in Judaism uh, was birthed? I'm, I'm curious if that made him if that encouraged him to become more liberal than his upbringing would have assumed? Well, it, uh, I, I always get anxious about the word liberal. I, you know, it's always a, it's a, we have so many um, ghosts on all those kind of, that kind of verbiage that we have to be really careful of. I, I think that Abraham Heschel was always a traditional conservative-centered um, Jew in his heart. Um, he was progressive in his desire and his hunger for knowledge and understanding. He wanted to be up to date on what all, all all philosophies that were going on. 
um, and he's reading Kant and everybody else. But at the same time, uh, I think he's he's studying in the Reform Seminary, but he's also studying in the Conservative, the Orthodox Seminary while he's in Berlin. So he's getting all of this this wide array of information and experiences that are happening to him. So he's he's getting an intellectual education at the University of Berlin, but he's studying in the seminaries, both conservative, orthodox, and reform. And so all of this is playing on him as a very young man, but he's he's so smart and so capable of, of sifting through it. He understands exactly who he is. He doesn't seem to ever go through a sort of an existential crisis himself. He understands exactly who he is and his relationship to God. And I think that always kept him centered, always centered for him. And and again, going back to Nazi Germany, uh, when did he make his escape? And at the time in 1940, how challenging was that for him to get out? He's actually, um, he's, um, he, he doesn't leave on his own choice. He's forced to leave Germany. It's 1938, uh, and he and other Jews are arrested and deported. Um, now, it's just across the border into Poland, but he's deported as a Jew uh, in October of 1938, and that's only weeks before Kristallnacht, uh, which is the famous night of broken glass, when uh, systematically... Uh, Jewish stores were torched, burned, destroyed. Synagogues, Jewish schools were destroyed. Uh, And so he was uh, forced out of the country just before the real violence began. There had already already been uh, episodes of imprisonment. Uh, Jewish thinkers and writers were being arrested. Uh, But he he got out in 1938 uh, and then spent some time in Poland, came over to England and spent a little time in England. But finally in 1940... Um, he was identified by um, the president, Julia, Julia Morgenstern, at um, Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, a reform school. Uh, and he was get, and they got a visa for him. Uh, he was given a visa with a handful of other Jewish scholars who were considered really at the top of their game uh, and brought over to the United States where he was able to be provided sanctuary here in the United States. Do you know that when he was in Poland, did he see the writing on the wall and want to get out of there in time as well? Or was it just... He uh, did. I mean, okay. it, was, it was becoming, by 1938, and certainly after Kristallnacht, I think there was this exodus. Everybody was, everybody was getting clearer and clearer about what was happening. Uh, Jews were trying to flee out of Germany at the time, many trying to flee Europe altogether to come to the United States. One of the sad chapters in American history is how closed America was to allowing uh, Jews to uh, emigrate out of out of places like Germany and come to the United States. But he knew what was happening. He, he could see that. And the tragedy is that he left behind his mother and three sisters um, who would eventually perish during World War II, his mother and one sister in the Warsaw Ghetto, uh, and then two other sisters who were lost as well. So he's, he was somebody who, who really had a firsthand experience at the horror of the Holocaust. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Martin Doblmeyer. He is the director of the documentary, which will be airing shortly, Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story. And it can be seen on WGVU-TV on May 16th. He turned, this is what he said, he turned his sorrow into a song. Can you explain that? Well, I think what's interesting about Heschel um, is, and I and I have you know I've been reading Heschel now for quite some time. 
uh, you see a man who's forced out of his the country that he loved and cared about, uh, who lost his mother and three sisters to the horrors of the of of uh, the hatred of the Nazis, and yet to read his works, uh, you don't find a lot of 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 anger and uh, and a, a commitment for revenge in any way, shape, or form in Abraham Heschel. He's somebody I think who who infused God into every notion that he had about how he was going to live his life. And so the tragedy that he he suffered personally was something that he could find a way to come out of it and in, and commit himself that he would not be indifferent. And that's the big that's the big I think mantra for Abraham Joshua Heschel. He took all of what would have been anger and frustration and hatred and revenge and, t- and turned that into activism, whereby he said, we can no longer not be involved. We can't be indifferent. We, he watched as nations around the world became indifferent about what was happening in Nazi Germany. And as he saw elements of injustices happening around him then, especially when he came to the United States, he was fully committed to saying that the one great thing we can't do is we cannot remain indifferent in the face of injustice. I saw once uh, he rebelled against the use of the word strict in describing his religious practice. He said he preferred uh, the word loving or lovingly. It it reminded me uh, a few years ago, there was a a newspaper article done on a religious group here in in, uh, Grand Rapids, and they were practicing some Eastern spirituality, and, and they were vegetarians. And the newspaper article referred to them as strict vegetarians. And I spoke to one of the people in the group, and they said, we, we hate it when people use the word strict vegetarians. It looks like you're eating with a scowl on your face. He says, we're, <laughs> we're, we're joyful vegetarians. <laughs> and, and, you know, seeing Heschel, you know, in your documentary and uh, in, in other recorded uh, events, it, I think that that's it. He was, he was loving in his practice even though to someone who didn't know him but knew what the practices were, might call them strict. Uh, anything to add to that in terms of how he lived his life? Well, I think that uh, I don't think he saw his, the practice of his faith as a burden in any way, shape, or form. I think he saw it as a privilege. I think the opportunity to honor God, to love God, to express that, and in many ways to teach others how to integrate God into their lives and to respond with love to the commandment of being involved in the world that you're living in. I I think he saw that as a privilege. Um, And as far as adherence, I mean, he was, he was orthodox, but at the same time, he was asked one time, um, how do you describe yourself, Rabbi Heschel? Do you consider yourself a reformed Jew, conservative, orthodox? And he famously said, "I, I don't consider myself a Jew who's looking for an adjective. I consider myself a person of faith and a Jew, uh, but I think he found a way to be able to communicate to, uh, to Jews all across the spectrum, and to Christians, and, to pe- and, and even to people who were atheists, who would look at and, and you could not help but respect Abraham Heschel, because you saw in him a reflection of a God he loved, and the, and the way he behaved out of that, you could only admire. His uh, dissertation was on the prophets from a Jewish perspective, obviously. But uh, the book now is a part of 
of Christian education in seminaries and colleges, what do you think would be the difference between how Jews and Christians might see the prophets, if if any, if any difference? Well, I think that um, prophets are central in Judaism. They they are, and I think it's quite remarkable that uh, in in uh, despite the fact that there have been many many books written on on the prophets throughout the course of history. Um, his book has become widely recognized as one of the most important books ever written about these central characters to the story of Judaism in the world, and um, I, I think deservingly so. Um, I, I don't think that uh, necessarily Christians look at um, at uh, the prophets necessarily in the same way or with the, with the same adherence. You know, from a Catholic point of view, Catholics have their saints that they honor uh, and that they study. Um, but the prophets, I think, are so central to, to Judaism, and they beca- he's able to translate them, talk about them, write about them, and translate them in such a way uh, that they become alive as characters. And that's what really inspired Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. It was that book on the prophets uh, that really became part of the of that the marching orders for the Civil Rights Movement. And, and that's why I think they were so excited and, and hopeful that he would be part of their movement. I'm wondering, do you think, this is speculation, but do you think that one of the differences is that when Christians read the uh, prophets in the Bible, they focus so much on those prophets predicting the birth and the life of Jesus, whereas Jews take them at face value for what they are saying about the times the, the times when it was written and... Um, allowing that wisdom to carry on over into today? Now, that's a great question, because I do myself uh, come out of a Christian tradition. I studied religion formally and and come out of that Christian tradition. Uh, And I think that's probably the case. And uh, we try to make mention in the facts uh, in the film several times, the fact that uh, people oftentimes mistakenly think in terms of prophets as people who are predicting the future. Uh, but what they really are are truth tellers, Navi. Um, they're they're telling the, the the truth that has to be told, facing the realities that have to be faced, and in some ways bringing an, an understanding in a very human sense uh, to what God is feeling about the current situation. So for me, uh, having read the prophets and having watched Heschel and the influence that he's able to bring into the Christian context by his interpretation of the prophets, I think for me it's just very inspiring to see, and it's given me a slightly different window on how I see them in my own life. He had a great affinity for black Christianity. We know this, obviously, through his relationship with the Civil Rights Movement and Martin Luther King. Um, And two questions— what drew him to that? And in your answer, if you could also comment on his quote, he said that if Judaism has any future in the USA, it is through the black church. I think there's a, there's, there was, from early on, a great respect for Abraham Heschel, within the, especially the black leadership uh, of the civil rights movement. Uh, they saw in him a, a figure who was slightly older at the time, a little bit of a grandfatherly or an uncle kind of a figure in Abraham Heschel, 
who physically embodied what they imagined a prophet looks like with his beard, uh, white beard, graying beard, and, and hair, long hair. And so he just became a, a sort of a, an embodiment of the prophets for them. And what Heschel saw within the African-American religious experience was a fervorness, a, a sense of physical commitment to, the, you know, to worshiping and honoring and loving the God that you're called to care for. Uh, and he, 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 he saw that as, as a hopeful sign. Um, he felt as though that um, within the black experience, uh, you had an opportunity to, uh, to honor God, to worship God with your whole body. And he loved that. And what's really interesting is I've spent a lot of time now with Susanna Heschel, the daughter of Abraham Heschel. And uh, yes, Abraham Heschel said that the, if there was a future for Judaism uh, in the United States, he saw that in, in that sort of the ferventness of worship by African-American churches. But she said now in retrospect, looking at the way that he continues to be held up, Abraham Heschel continues to be held up within the African-American religious experience, was the most sincere form of gratitude and adoration for her father that she saw across the board. As far as you know, her father being remembered and held in high esteem, all that came out of, the, uh, out of the civil rights movement, and because of what they recognized was this extraordinary gift that he brought to their movement, and for, they were forever grateful. And so when she gets together with people like Jesse Jackson, and then recently until he passed away with John Lewis, they never, ever stopped telling her how much indebted they were to her father and the way that he joined their movement and the great gifts that he brought to the civil rights movement. I want to thank you so much, Martin. We are down to the wire for this episode of Common Threads, but we have many more questions to ask. I'm hoping you'll be uh, able to join us next week. It went very quickly, Fred. Thank you. Certainly. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Martin Doblemeyer. He is the director of the upcoming documentary Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story which will be airing over our sister station, WGVU-TV, on May 16th. Please join us again next week for more conversation with Martin here on Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue.
I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Martin Doblmeyer. He is the director of Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, which will air over PBS stations across the country in May. Locally, the film can be seen on our sister station, WGVU-TV, on May 16th. Right now, I'd like to give you just a sneak preview. This is a portion of Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story. On the front lines of the historic Civil Rights March in Selma, Alabama, standing along with Martin Luther King Jr., is one of the most remarkable religious figures of the 20th century, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. I think they became friends, but more than friends, they became brothers. He was the authority on the prophets, but on this occasion, he was the prophet. (laughs) Abraham Heschel is plucked from the fire of the Holocaust that will take the life of his mother and sisters. And in 1940, he arrives in America. And he's already come out of this magnificent dynasty of rabbis that go back for centuries. He's part of a dynastic royalty. He lived in excruciating ways with the reality that as the world and the family he grew up in was destroyed in Europe, most of the world was in fact indifferent. Remember, in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. Over the next three decades, Heschel fights indifference through his vision of a God who seeks to partner with humanity. To be in real connection to God was to be in awe and radical amazement at the universe that God had created. And his love for the prophets of the Hebrew Bible who dare speak truth to power. And Heschel taught that each of us has a choice to make. What side of history do we ultimately want to land on? He was kind of a theological Hemingway. He wrote in short, pithy aphorisms of enormous power. Heschel plays a pivotal role in reshaping the contentious relationship between Catholics and Jews. But I also have to remind them that my being Jewish is so sacred to me that I am ready to die for it. And he risks being in the forefront of the protests against what he believes is an immoral war in Vietnam. My father was attacked for so many of the public positions that he took. My father wouldn't be quiet. No one could silence him. I am an optimist against my better judgment. Somehow, I believe in God. And somehow, I believe and am convinced that he will have mercy and pity. More than we deserve. So, once again, we hope you'll be able to tune in to watch the entire film on May 16th. So let's continue our conversation with Martin Doblmeyer, and let me tell you a little bit about him. Martin holds degrees in religious studies and broadcast journalism. Since 1984, he has produced and directed more than 30 films focused on religion, faith, and spirituality. Martin combines a lifelong interest in religion with a passion for storytelling. Over the years, he has traveled on location to more than 40 countries to profile numerous religious leaders, spiritual communities, heads of state, and Nobel laureates. His films explore how belief can lead individuals to extraordinary acts, how spirituality creates and sustains communities, and how faith is lived in extraordinary ways. A moment ago, I mentioned the luminaries of faith Bonhoeffer and Dorothy Day, 
Those two have been subjects of previous documentaries of Martin that are now available for viewing on YouTube. We welcome once again to Common Threads, Martin Doblemeyer. Hello, Martin. Hello, Fred. Thank you for having me. Certainly. So let's talk a little bit more about the person of Abraham Joshua Heschel and his deep, deep spirituality. A couple of things uh, right off the bat. It said that awe, wonder, and radical amazement permeated his writings. Could you explain that for someone who is not familiar with his writings? Well, it, it really starts um, in one of his earlier works written in 1951 uh, called Man is Not Alone. Uh, and it's a fundamental belief that Abraham Heschel had not, not, not only for that period of time when he wrote that book, but really it's, it's sort of stamped the entire, entirety of his life uh, to see God and to have in a, a sense of God's wonder and amazement. And he draws a line between two different ways to perceive of how you see other people and the world around you. Uh, it, one is the way, what they call the way of expediency, uh, where you see everything as its ability to function and to serve you, to benefit you, um, or to be aware of the wonder and the amazement, the radical amazement, as he would say, of the creation that God has given us, both in the world that we see, the physical world that we see, and in the human beings that we are, we are engaging. Uh, in some ways, this is not radically different uh, from the writings and the thinkings of one of the people who was a mentor uh, to, uh, to Heschel, and that's Martin Buber, who wrote the classic book called I and Thou. And that's a book that really had great impact on me personally when I was even in high school. And I began to see that, you know, people, these kinds of writings were talking about you, the way you see others in, that you encounter in the world means everything. Do you see others as a way to advance yourself, somebody that could be exploited and taken advantage of, or do you actually see a sense of the divine revealed in them? And that, I think, is, is really part and parcel of what, what uh, Heschel was dealing with throughout the course of his life, that notion of awe and wonder, seeing the revelation of God in both the natural world that you saw around you, and in particular, in humanity that you engaged with. Boy, that's, uh, that's so true about Buber. Uh, he played a, a profound role in the development of my own spirituality. And I can't remember whether it was high school or college, but I, yes, I agree that uh, that, can, that can change someone, that, that, that line of thinking. Well, I, I was introduced to Buber in a high school class. Uh, I'm 16 or 17 at the time, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of grasping that how will I now, not, and now I've sort of under, come out of underneath my parents' direction, and I'm trying to figure out how am I going to be looking at the world, seeing the world. And Buber uh, was introduced to me at a time when I was very open to that, and it just stayed with me. I mean, I've carried that notion of seeing others either as a way to profit from or take advantage of or to benefit me, or do I really see them as God revealed in them? Uh, and that's shaped everything for me, for the, really for the rest of my life. And, and Heschel is all part of that. He's, he's trying to get at it in slightly different ways, using the same different kind of language and awe and wonder. But that's ultimately what he's talking about. Do you see the possibility that God is present in a divine way in the other person? And that's, that, that's a, a sense of revelation. It almost always hits me when I'm in the midst of a purely transactional 
relationship. That is to say, uh, a clerk at a store, something, a, a, a very mundane experience. But all, uh, in terms of how I treat that person, Boober is always nudging. <laughs> make it a little more personal. Uh, go on. No, I was just going to say, if you, if you really accept fundamentally at your core the concept that that person that you are even having this momentary transactional relationship with is some way revealing the presence of God, even that small transactional relationship is, is, is done differently than if you simply see them as a way to sort of process you and you process them and you move on and move out. So that's, that was the great gift that I got uh, from Buba when I was in high school, and that's sort of been reignited with me uh, again in engaging Heschel. And, and uh, Heschel writes about God searching for us, God searching for humanity, which sounds uh, a bit paradoxical. Can you shed any light on that? I, this is a very anthropomorphic God, obviously, that we're talking about. Uh, how can God search for us? Well, the, the notion of God searching for us almost sounds arrogant. I mean, there's a, there's, there could be an, a, a, a sense of arrogance in that notion, uh, that we are the ones that are sought after by God, which seems totally antithetical to what a lot of people are raised to believe. Uh, but I don't think that I don't really see Heschel talking about that out of arrogance. What he sees is that we are commissioned. His his idea is that we are commissioned every day by God, who loves us and cares about us and wants us to be part of this ongoing process of healing the world. Um, we one of the one of the writers and thinkers in the film is is a, a Rabbi Shai Held, and he says that he God wants partners. God wants covenant partners in the world to help us do sometimes the most difficult things we can imagine in the transformation of the world, the healing of the world, to kun alem, to sort of be engaged in the, the healing and, and making the world a better place than what we received it as. And I think that's, that's pure Heschel. He, he understands that we are called to do something. If we really buy into this notion that God has his hand in the world, uh, and that creation is an ongoing process, that we become part of that ongoing process. We have a role to play, an obligation. Something is asked of us. Uh, and that's, I think, at the heart of everything that Heschel was driving at. Let's talk about Heschel's uh, role in the creation of Nostra Aetate, the Declaration of the Catholic Church, which uh, just had an incredibly... It, it's unfathomable to even think about the change in the relationship between Jews and Catholics when that document came out. And, and so again, what did Heschel have to do with that uh, document? Well, it's 1962, and uh, Pope at the time, Pope John the Twenty Third is going to shock the world um, by inviting the bishops, the leadership of the Catholic Church from around the world, to assemble in Rome. Uh, to begin the process, the long, tedious process of evaluating where the Church was and where it needed to be as it was engaging now in the modern world. And then for the next, uh, uh, till 1965, every fall, the bishops would convene again in Rome 
to hammer out documents that would actually help to reshape the Catholic Church uh, and its relationship with not only the world, um, but also in particular, uh, how it would engage with other faith traditions, even non-Christian faiths, how, how, how it was going to be present to those, because there was a sense within the Catholic experience at the time that the Catholic Church was the only way, the only path to heaven and to salvation, and the Catholic Church now is open to the notion that maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe other faiths have a value. Maybe other traditions uh, have uh, the possibility of being a source for us as Catholics to draw on, they would say. And so Heschel, because of his association with the, um, uh, the AJC, the American Jewish Committee, uh, was invited to be part of the formulation of a document that was called that became known as Nostra Aetate, Latin for "In Our Time," where the Catholic Church took on the hard role of accepting the fact that there was a 2,000-year tradition and history uh, that was scarred by the notion of a sense of uh, of Catholics being superior, that Jews had missed the boat 2,000 years ago in denying. The, the divine aspect of Jesus Christ, and that that had to be rectified, and Heschel was part of that, and and that was tough going for a number of years, and there were times at which the Catholic Church still wanted to have language in the document that would call for the potential conversion of Jews to the Catholic faith, and Heschel famously said, I'm going to work on this document with you, I want to help you as a church, the Catholic Church, to be able to formulate a new document, a new perspective, but not at the expense of saying that you will eventually hold the hope that you will convert me. I would rather go to Auschwitz, he said, than be converted and to give up my own faith. Uh, and that, I think, shocked many of the bishops when he actually said that line. Uh, and then was, when you look over the evolution of the process of the document, it went through many drafts. But the final document does not call for the, for the conversion of Jews uh, to Catholicism, but in fact calls for a sense of fraternal connectedness, brotherhood, unity, and, and an, an understanding of a mutual appreciation for the faith tradition of the other. And this has sent the Catholic Church, and I think consequently Christianity, down a very different path of how it was going to engage with other faith traditions now for the next half century. Do we know what was the game-changer what was it that made them change or persuaded them to change that language? Well, it's said that um, Abraham Heschel um, was the, was part of the reason why his his strident sense that converting me should not be the goal of a Catholic a full Catholic engagement. That's not the way to respect me as a Jew. Um, and then the bishops at that, and, and when the final documents came around, it was an overwhelming vote, Fred, to say that uh, we are not going to vote in terms of continuing language that hopes for the conversion of Jews. But let's now think in terms of everybody meeting on an equal footing, on an equal standing. And that has, I think, has had now 50 years worth of of continuous growth and, and, and reimagining the potential for relationships between Catholics and Jews and Catholics and, and non-Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims. Uh, I, I was very moved uh, in the fall of 2018 with the tragedy that happened um, at Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when a shooter went in and, and uh, killed many of the people who were at worship in Tree of Life. And the next day, uh, Pope Francis uh, came out with a public document that said when 
when our Jewish friends are hurting as a result of this, these kinds of terrible, hateful behaviors, we all, all feel the suffering and the pain from it. I don't think that would have been a, a, a statement that would have been possible before a document like Nostra Aetate and the openness to people of other faith having a valued relationship with their God that we have to engage with fully and respectfully. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. My name is Fred Stella, and with me today is Martin Doblmeyer. He is the director of Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, which will air over PBS stations in May. Tell us about his anti-war activities. I'm gathering that he may have lost a few friends, at least at the beginning of this effort. Well, if you mean the anti-war activities that were particular to Vietnam. That's correct. Um, yes, that, that was really something, Fred. Um, uh, this is in 1967 in particular. Uh, the war is escalating. This is before... Um, um, the famous documents that came out from Daniel Ellsberg that, re- uh, that revealed to the nation uh, how the country had been deceived about the actual engagement, uh, the extent of the engagement of the war in Vietnam. So Heschel was way early on the curve about all of this. Uh, and in 1967, um, he, he took advantage in some ways of his friendship, personal friendship and trust with Martin Luther King Jr., who had recently won the Nobel Prize for Peace and said that you have become widely acclaimed and celebrated, um, Dr. King, for your work in the civil rights movement, calling for justice, uh, calling for justice for African-Americans, rightly so. Uh, But your peace distinction as a peace laureate, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, also could be used uh, to leverage that authority that you have now to speak out against the war in Vietnam. And that's exactly what he was able to convince Martin Luther King to do. And in April of 1967, um, they all gathered, uh, King and Heschel and a number of other prominent speakers at the time, in uh, uh, Riverside Church in in New York. Huge cathedral-like church. And with an audience of thousands, Martin Luther King Jr. that night, at the urging of Heschel, came out with a wide condemnation of the Vietnam War. And I think in some ways that shot a, it was a shot of adrenaline into the anti-war movement. Uh, both King and Heschel, but King in particular, were castigated in the press right after that. This is totally wrong. King has no right to speak about this. He's way out of the bounds of his areas of authority. Let him stay to the civil rights movement. That's where he has authority, not in these kind of activities. And it was considered to be unpatriotic, un-American. And there was a lot of grief, and especially uh, Heschel received a lot of grief because there were many people who were concerned that support from the United States to the fledgling nation that was Israel at the time could end, could dry up because of Heschel's, because of Heschel's condemnation of the politics of America at the time. And yet both of them decided that this is what they felt they were called to do. This was the prophetic voice that they needed to bring to that particular moment. And they did it, and now history looks back at that as a, as a seminal moment in the anti-war movement. Do we know what it was that encouraged him to speak out? He, he, he didn't know at the time that, that the government lied to us uh, about uh, Vietnam. Um, so it looked like it could possibly be a just 
uh, a conflict. It wasn't te- technically a war, but it was a conflict. What was it that made him go, no, we should not be there? Well, you have to remember that on one side back in 1967 was a real genuine fear of the rise of communism. And so most people who deemed themselves to be patriotic Americans wanted to thwart communism. Uh, But on the other side, too, there were many people who were just absolutely perplexed at how America continued to involve themselves in Southeast Asia to fight an enemy that, that we really couldn't understand. And Heschel had emerged already as such a prominent spokesperson in 1967 uh, that he was one of the co-founders of an organization called Clergy and Laity United Against the War in Vietnam. Clergy and Laity coming together, and he represented the clergy. And there were about 50,000 people who were part of that organization, including prominent names like William Sloan Coffin, um, who, who was uh, a very prominent pastor and preacher uh, back in the 1960s. So there was already stories, rumors, news reports that are coming in about what America's involvement were. Like I said before, it was before um, uh, Daniel Berrigan uh, released m- much more details about the extent of America's involvement. Uh, but it was widely known what America was doing, uh, and it was widely criticized, but not nowhere near the extent that would happen over the next number of years as more and more people of conscience became committed to the anti-war movement. And in the uh, remaining time that we have, Martin, tell us about his take on Israel and Palestine. Well, I'm, I'm often asked, uh, at the time that this happened, uh, in the 19, 1948, uh, the creation of Israel, uh, it's widely reported how Abraham Heschel, like many Jews around the world, every Jew around the world, was absolutely convinced this was miraculous. Such a long time coming. And so overdue, had there been a state of Israel, a free state of Israel in the 1930s, how Jews would have clearly had a place to go to as they were fleeing uh, the rise of Nazism in Germany and and later persecution in other parts of Europe where where the Germans had taken over. So in 1948, when the creation of Israel happens, it was a godsend for people. Uh, and uh, that's how it was perceived. Heschel dies in uh, 1972, so he does not know what, what you know. He does, he's not aware of all the changes that would be happening in Israel at the time. But certainly, uh, he he believed that this was a godsend, and he was critical at the time of of some of the activities that were happening, some of the actions that were taken by by, by the Jewish army, and uh, in, in the ways that Jews would engage um, Palestinians. Uh, and he was he could be critical of that. There's a there's a case where there had been a mass um, there had been a mass shooting in Israel at the time of pal- Palestinians, uh, and uh, conflict was raging. And he he, he was actually in his classroom uh, at, at Jewish Theological Seminary, and he had heard the news about this and felt so distraught that he called the class off. Uh, so he had qualms about what was happening in Israel at the time. But at the at, when when it was first when it was first declared its own independent state, he thought of it as just a miracle that it happened. Yeah, I seem to recall him saying that, you know, it's something like, this is a a paraphrase, it's just land. And I found that interesting coming from a devout Jew because that land is so important to Jews 
but obviously he was taking in consideration the challenges that the Palestinians were facing. Yeah. Yes, no, that's a good point. Actually, the, the language that he uses is, we do not worship the soil. That's it. You're right. And uh, what he was trying to say is he was trying to differentiate between the physical plot of land and a homeland for Jewish people. And I think that's exactly what he was trying to focus on. You know, he's such, he's so brilliant in the use of his language to make distinctions. So when he talks about the Sabbath, uh, he talks about, as, as especially for Jews, this is a cathedral in time. We do not, we, you know, we honor God through our use of time and not in space, not the creation of great spaces. So Heschel's really sort of holding on to this theme that of, of humanity versus the land, of time rather than space. So I, I think it's in some ways it's, it's mystical. It, it sort of demands a lot of thought and a sort of going along with him as he tries to unpack some of these ideas. But I think he's really, he's, he's really uh, uh, trying to break the boundaries of our traditional thinking appreciating in this particular case the the, play, the home of Israel as a home of a people versus not worshiping the land. Martin, this is a very fascinating documentary that I really hope that people will take advantage of by watching it locally here on WGVU-TV on uh, May 16th. And I want to thank you so much for your time today and last week as well. Oh, this has been a pleasure, Fred. Thanks for your good questions and your interest in our films. It means a lot. You're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Martin Doblmeyer, and we're talking about the documentary Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, which will air over PBS stations in May. Locally, the film can be seen on our sister station, WGVU-TV, on May 16th. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again next week here on Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads